Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Jim Sherlock. Jim is Director of Information Security and Technology Implementation at Pearson. Jim's teams are responsible for protecting more than 250 million sensitive records that are processed and maintained by Pearson's global assessment platforms. Jim is one of the inventors on the U.S. Patent on Automated Testing Error Assessment Systems, and most recently, Jim continues to push the bounds of ed tech and is exploring virtual reality. Jim grew up in Williamsburg, Iowa, and earned his Bachelor of Arts and Master's degrees at the University of Iowa. At Iowa, Jim played trombone in the marching band and jazz ensembles, as well as hosting a jazz show on KRUI. Jim shares his journey from education to cybersecurity to ed tech, and we explore the through lines that holds it all together. We explore early worldwide web technology and the move from server farms to cloud computing, with a deep dive on Amazon's customer-centric approach to innovation. We dig into the last-mile issues faced by schools and districts when it comes to Internet-enabled technology, as well as the potential of tech to enhance future learning environments. It was an honor having Jim join me on the show. I'd like to thank him for his time and perspective. I hope you enjoy the episode. Jim, thanks so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea Podcast, and it's absolute pleasure to to have you here. Uh, if you don't mind, for for me and our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely, I can tell you a lot a bit about myself uh, if you'll give me the mic. But I'm uh, so I'm Jim Sherlock. I am an Iowa City resident. I grew up uh, in my formative years in the on the mean streets of Williamsburg, Iowa. I'm your twenty miles to the west of us on Interstate 80 and, and uh, went to the University of Iowa for my undergrad uh, graduate degree. My, my lifelong goal was to be on the football field playing football um, in a Hawkeye uniform. And other than uh, athleticism, uh, strength, size, and a few other details, I was on the track to do it, but that didn't work out. So I joined the marching band. Uh, and that's pretty much why I went to the University of Iowa so that I could be on the football field uh, playing trombone in this case. And um, ended up uh, getting my degree in psychology and uh, social studies education uh, from the University of Iowa and spent uh, the next few years actually out in Washington, D.C., uh, working for the Defense Department, doing um, cryptography and um, uh, network analysis uh, for the uh, Defense Information Systems Agency. Uh, it's a fairly long story how I got there. It's probably best if I just Leave it at that. Um, but I got a chance to dabble in in some tech stuff while I was out in DC, and uh, my wife and I wanted to move back to Iowa. And I had a little decision to make: how do I kind of merge my passion and education, which I hadn't quite jumped into in the professional world with this newfound tech skill? And uh, lo and behold, I I landed at Pearson uh, back in uh, 2004, um, doing work uh, doing work in the assessments division and. 17 years later, here I am. Uh, I'm still uh, doing work largely in assessments. Uh, my current role right now is Director of Information Security and Technology Implementation for our school and clinical lines of business. Uh, and uh, so I, I still manage to kind of stay close to education and some of the, the larger themes in ed tech, but also, uh, you know, definitely a, a tech geek uh, also. So I love it. There's the there's a there's a few a few themes that I and and threads uh, that I want to tug on a little bit, but it, uh, if you don't mind, can you tell me like what time what time frame are we talking about for undergrad? Because I'm I'm just kind of curious both uh, from the condition of the Iowa Hawkeye football program where they were at when you were a marching band, but then also just uh, when you were starting to dabble in tech, just where where we were at with uh, uh, kind of 
technology of the day. Yeah. All right. We'll start with the football because that's the most uh, interesting side. So 93 to 98 for undergrad. So I was um, the tail end of Hayden Fry's career uh, at the beginning of the, you know, the cupboard uh, was a little um, uh, less full or uh, more bare yeah. uh, than, than it is now at the beginning of the, of the Coach Ferentz era. Um, I had the pleasure of going to four uh, bowl trips with the University of Iowa marching band, two in El Paso. Uh, and two in San Antonio for the Alamo Bowl and, and got to travel with the basketball teams uh, during Dr. Tom's uh, final year here, too. So I was kind of in that, like, in the golden age of uh, Dr. Tom Davis, Hayden Fry, uh, and then, uh, you know, in, in usher in the new. And, of course, Coach Ferentz is still here, so it's right. not a lot of change on that side. But uh, from a technology standpoint, you know, when when I started at the University of Iowa, I mean, I, I think I bought a yeah, I bought an Apple Apple, uh, an Apple II GS, I think, when I started school, like uh, from from the from the office in the basement of the Linquist Center, where they like sold Apple products. Wig? The Wig Computing yeah. Center, yes, yeah, where they had these giant like printers, uh, and so I remember I saved up forever to get a computer, and and then had a dial-up modem uh, in my dorm and um, uh, at the Mayflower, um, and uh, never forget the tone. Right, uh, right. Of uh, of the uh, of the dial up and, but you know, I mean, we didn't have cell phones. Thank goodness uh, at the time. Didn't have like I I would go to the uh, Linguist Center when I was in even in grad school to use uh, the computers, and there was I think a room in the in the library maybe that was focused on like ed tech and it was right when I think we had a we uh, one of my classes had a there was a class in like Wales or um scotland that we had a sister uh class that we would talk to and that was like mind-blowing that we could talk to people across the ocean at the time but like tech wasn't part of my i didn't like computers and it wasn't part of my training uh by any means that's that that's interesting and just from a like just for you uh setting context for so i my undergrad was 89 to 93 at iowa and mm -hmm. It was around 92, right? It was the information arcade was that first like, technology. That's right. Yes, yep. that's the name. That's the name. And I, <laughs> I had a literature course, but it was, we built, um, essentially we were building interactive uh, uh, presentations and uh, they, they would, they'd be saved down to a SideQuest cartridge that if I remember correctly, had about 44 meg of mm -hmm. memory. And, <laughs> and I think it was $50 to buy the mm -hmm. SideQuest cartridge. And uh, yeah, your your week stuff for me. My uh, part of my routine as a, a student, always looking to uh, Im improve my grade without necessarily studying or writing <laughs> better, was uh, swinging into. I'd ride my bike into campus a day, you know, when a paper is due, go into week and have it laser printed. Yes, yeah. I I am. I'm a firm believer that I think I got a full grade improvement every time, like just laser printing a yeah. paper. <laughs> yeah. And you didn't have to spend the time like tearing the sides of the paper off uh, with that little perforation. Cause that was yeah. like, I never had the patience to do it well. Yeah. So most of my papers had just big gouges out of the side from tearing the little perforated edges of the printer off. So yeah, laser printing, like, yeah, that was, that would, uh, that's like the, that was the modern day version of like laminating your report back in the day that would really give you. Oh yeah. That's, that's like, that's like how we did it then in the early. The 90s. plastic sheet with yeah. the, uh, the, the plastic binder that you right. bind that you put on it. So let me ask you about the, uh, the marching band. A couple things that I'm curious about uh, as somebody that has spent a fair amount of time in Kinnick, uh, both as a, as a, as a fan, but also uh, with, with students doing the, the the cleanup right after the game. But the the temperature variation in a football season in Iowa City from that that either la basically last days of August or first days of September is usually the home opener to uh, November. What is it like sitting in band uniforms in the sun in yeah. August? Well, they're wool. Uh, so they're really hot. And I was, I had the pleasure of being on the work crew uh, in the marching band for probably four um, of the years. You know, I think, I think I, so I did, I did marching band for um, a good, uh, wow, a good uh, six years. Uh, actually, I didn't, uh, because I did undergrad for five, grad for two. Um, I, like I had to get my degree and marching band was getting in the way. So 
I didn't do it a seventh year, but um, on the work crew, one of your responsibilities is to like uh, go get the water from the tunnel and hand it out to people that are hot and go get the apples um, at halftime because we would get apples from a local orchard. And um, but, you know, like if you talk to an old timer like me, they'll say back in our day, we never took our coats off. Uh, you just didn't do that. That's part of the, your discipline. You're tough. Um, I'm pretty sure we did. But the story uh, goes now like we never took it up but today of course and rightly so they take them off and they're in their t-shirts and they have uh you know they have attire and hats and other things that match like we didn't have that then but the hot was was rough the cold um uh to me wasn't was, wasn't nearly as bad like you could kind of you know layer up for that and and we're used to it um now if you're a brass player uh, the cold was kind of tough because your your slide or your valves would would freeze, uh, which was a challenge. And we had all kinds of um, liquid uh, liquid assistance in squirt bottles that we would bring in, of course, only for our slides or valves uh, to make sure they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't freeze up. Um, but I would take cold over hot any day. Uh, it was just man, the heat in those wool uniforms was not good. Thank you. Uh, one, one other kind of marching band question, and, and maybe this is like you're sworn to secrecy, so you can't say, uh, the rumor I've heard about the university of Iowa marching band is that the victory polka, uh, because of uh, like, uh, you know, Iowa trying to be a, a good institution and not encouraging drinking is that there's no sheet music that is shared with the band and that the, it's a tradition that it's, it's demonstrated and handed down, but there's been no sheet music to teach generations the victory polka. Yes, that I have also heard that too. I I'd I'd like to think that the reason that it's passed down more like uh, in the tradition of other oral history uh, across the world is just because it's it's that sacred, and that's how you pass pass along those types of sacred lessons from one generation to another but your story makes sense um and it's also the same story why there's you know there is no such thing as a friday night band that goes around and plays uh, the night before a home game either it's just it's just weird how just randomly it happens it spontaneously happens just by a total random chance that people get together and they want to play some music the night before a football game but uh, there's no music in that either uh it's just you know everybody just kind of knows so sometimes some of these things you just they're best left uh, uh, to lie and not uh, psychoanalyze, and we just say they happen. So, uh, and and uh, remind me, you did both undergrad and then you did your master's right away. So those were back to back. Yeah, yeah. So the program that I went through at the University of Iowa was um, a master's uh, with teaching uh, endorsement program. So during the two years, um, I studied. Um, under Dr. Bruce Fain and Dr. Greg Hammett in the um, Social Studies Education Department at the University of Iowa, and where I where I received my my degree, uh, and then I also got a teaching um, endorsement in um, U.S. history and government psychology and uh, sociology. So uh, I was certified to teach those. I did my student teaching um, in the spring of 2000 in, at Clear Creek Amana High School. Uh, and uh, was all ready to teach and then got married at the end of grad school. And that just didn't happen right away. So, and so was it, was it because of marriage that you ended up in DC? Yeah, exactly. So my, my, I met my wife in the marching band uh, at the university of Iowa on her first day of uh, school as a freshman, actually being in the work crew. um, In addition to handing out apples and water, uh, we fit people for their uniforms. So when the freshmen come in, they get uh, unfortunately the last pick, of uniforms. Uh, they're the lowest on the totem pole. And one of my jobs is to make sure they get a uniform that eh, kind of fits uh, or something that somebody can hem for them. And um, that, uh, that is how I met my wife. I fit her for he, her uniform. Uh, and, uh, and the rest is, well, not the rest is history. It took a little while, but we ended up um, getting married. Yeah. At the end of my uh, grad school. Uh, and then she went out to university of Maryland college park, Maryland to get her master's degree in applied anthropology. Uh, and that's sort of how we ended up uh, living in Tacoma Park, Maryland for three years while she was um, getting her master's. Oh, that's great. Uh, and yeah, I, uh, it, it's about you. <laughs> it really is this interview, but I, uh, uh, anthropology fascinates me. Uh, so I would, I, I, we'll need to dig in uh, you know, a conversation uh, with your wife uh, at another time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and uh, you're, you're out in DC and then you're, wor- you're working in, defense and uh did you and and did you say uh 
crypto? Yeah, in cryptography. So I worked on the, um, so the, how it went, I, I got hired as a technical writer. So my, my mom um, is a teacher, a school teacher. Uh, she had her master's in English. Um, so one of the things uh, that I learned to do just right after walking was like write properly and use adverbs properly and that kind of stuff. So I could write fairly well. And it, that was really what I did because um, I, the timing out there didn't work to get a teaching job right away. So I was a technical writer. Um, but then 9-11 happened um, very, very soon after we moved out there. And all of the or most of the people that were doing the work that I was writing um, about their work, um, they were foreign nationals and could no longer work on the secure networks. Um, I had uh, the advantage of being a small town Iowa person, have only left the, uh, the, the country twice, and that was for four hours each time uh, to go into Juarez, Mexico, uh, when we were down in the Sun Bowl. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so I was not uh, one of those that it took very long to get um, the security clearance. I, I ended up getting my secret and top secret. And, uh, and then um, it was, well, do you want to be a techie? Because it's going to take us two years to get uh, security clearance for, for these engineers again back on the network. Would you like to go back to school? So I, I went to school and I, and I really focused on uh, networking, uh, TCP uh, very specifically, and then and moved into um, uh, public key, private key infrastructure. So I, I was part of the DOD's program um, when they first started embedding biometric information inside of their common access cards. So my, my job was to, to work on the encryption mechanism to encrypt the uh, protected health information that were part of the, part of the uh, biometric information on their CAT cards. That is a, that's a wild ride. Uh, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm, uh, I'm smiling because I'm thinking about some of my early career was uh, on like large scale enterprise software and, and yeah, the, the, the need for good technical writers and just, just thinking about these behemoth systems that were so hard for the end user, the amount of documentation to like explain it was, is fascinating. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a pretty common at least theme for me if I, if I'm like allow myself to be even the slightest bit retrospective and think you know what is it what are the things that I learned um, maybe not intentionally you know growing up in small town Iowa or or going through the, my formal studies at university that that helped me be successful in in my career and I think um, one of the main 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 ones are like the ability to um, break down large complex problems into manageable chunks like any you know any engineer is going to do when they problem solve but then um explaining uh that to someone uh that that really doesn't have a technical background like you 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 have to have a really good understanding of not only the technology that underlies the concept but then just sort of like human behavior that i think some of my my degree my undergrad degree in communication studies and uh, like like that stuff, I think kind of helps me in that area where maybe someone that might be exclusively trained in like an engineering discipline or something like that might might not have that um, ex exposure or or uh, a, you know that experience of having to translate something like that to a, a non technical audience. And I really do attribute much of my um, career growth and success to that fairly underlying you know ability to explain a complex problem to to maybe non not the most technical audience yeah yeah and i could see how uh, also technical writing for you uh, assumption on my part but i could see how that would uh, really help um drive like your understanding of how this whole system works right because you you have to describe not only do you you have to understand it so well that you can actually convey that to others so then you're getting this in-depth kind of understanding of how the system runs and 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 you said and and you said TCP IP right like the kind of the some yep. of the 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 early backbone of of the world wide web right yeah yeah i mean i was like hardcore into it and it was kind of a like most you don't really get to fly right, like if you're getting exposed to the, you don't get to fly right into TCPIP. Like that's normally one chapter in 20 that you take that in a distributed computing class or something like, no, I was, 
like my, 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 I spent a year learning how to use packet analyzers and network sniffers. So like my life was in layer, you know, three and four up to layer seven and decrypting uh, traffic. And, and then I parlayed that into uh, more of a performance engineering career, at least at Pearson. Um, uh, once I, once I got here after a few years, because um, that was about the time when performance engineering as a discipline was really um, getting uh, popular uh, instrumentation of of code to yep. to essentially try to you know create a, an observable system um, by putting by putting in uh, bytecode instrumentation um, you know in the in the JVM or in the Java code. So I that's really where I like I ended up landing in this area where I was doing performance engineering and performance optimization um, for distributed assessment platforms. Um, in data centers that were hosted in data centers really for all the way until uh, we started kind of our cloud journey in uh, 2014. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So then, you know, bringing it, bringing it back home, literally for you coming back to Iowa city and then uh, working with Pearson and, and now you're, you're dealing with some of the most progressive kind of tech aspects to large scale assessments and, and, do you mind talking a little bit about without giving away any secret sauce yeah. to Pearson, but uh, what, what, what do you love about uh, cloud computing? Uh, Cause it, and, and I'll just throw up where my mental model is, is given when we grew up kind of early technology is I remember early concepts of the cloud, but still like raised in an environment where you, you had to save something to disc or right. It was yep. like, and now the notion of, cloud and and instances of things always there is is it's it's hard to think about but it's sometimes like electricity right like yeah you just expect it to be there but if you if you were raised like an old man like me it's like i, re- I remember when you sometimes you even had to ask if you know is this mac or pc right yeah and, and you well you were you probably worked on systems that uh like you knew the machines by name they probably had uh, they were named something clever like like Star Trek characters or Star Wars. Like like we had everybody had a closet with, you know, this is Spock and this is you know like that. That's these machines were they were like robot versions of us and they had a personality and uh, they took on things like oh they're just ornery they restarted like they're we would personify them and, but yeah and so to go from that like that you you had something you could touch and feel uh and that almost had a personality to like it it's disposable and uh was is difficult especially for someone that likes to troubleshoot and and you know like really figure out what's going on um it, it was a challenge because the reality is at some point and that point um is pretty quick a lot quicker than you want it to be it's a it's much more easy for you to uh, destroy it and rebuild it again than try to figure out what's wrong. And that whole concept of disposable, you're, you're nothing to me. Uh, you, you don't even have a name. You've got an instance ID that's 32 characters and no, no one is ever going to know you. Like, takes a little while to get over. Um, but once you really, really think about what the cloud can do and just like any software as a service model in technology or elsewhere, like its whole purpose is to uh, take away burden from an individual who really has one goal and that's to let an idea um, run as far as it can, as fast as it can. And uh, so if somebody can do this data center thing better than I can, because it's their core competency and that frees me up to be able to focus on things that I'm uh, that differentiate me or us as a company, like in education or assessment or whatever, then like, that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going, we're, we're not going to try to duplicate expertise. Um, we want to focus on. So once I really understood that, then uh, the amount of um, innovation that, uh, that the cloud started to bring to our group, just, it exploded. Uh, and it it and it happens so much quicker than uh, we would have anticipated. Even though the best thinkers at the time were saying like this is going to explode, you don't really realize until you look back now. And now we have you know forty thousand instances that we manage in the cloud, over nine hundred accounts in Amazon, one of their largest customers in you know the world in their worldwide public sector. Like 
been we've been doing it six years. That's like forty years in cloud <laughs> in cloud yeah. years. But it's amazing how how just quickly um, an organization once once they get a critical mass mass of innovators that want to build on on cloud, like how quickly you you gravitate towards it. Thanks. I know the nerding out with you here a little bit too is like some some things I'm fascinated about is just remembering like the uh, the raised floor server rooms right yep. and like these huge huge pieces of real estate in large businesses that were just basically on site server farms and yep. just even how through the years that has even changed just because of processing power and storage power on a physical device, but now that they don't even have to be, you know, a physical instance doesn't have to be there anymore with the cloud, I think is, is just an interesting transition to see, like you said, all the things, what does that unlock too, if you don't have to rely on a physical device or what it does to your backup strategy. Yeah. And even like, if you take it into the business world is where, where, and and this is very applicable to what, you know, our team um, and Pearson is, is um, facing right now, which is like, uh, when when we had a data when, when our all systems ran in a data center we had Pearson data centers around the world we had teams that managed the the rack power cabling firewalls infrastructure all that jazz like especially in assessments where you need to have a lot of capital to 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 be able to handle this massive flood of testing which is kind of like like the hallmark.com or the intuit turbo taxes of the world uh it you're, you're an event based um, business in, in the e-commerce world. Um, so like you, you have to provision buy, provision and install and have ready on the floor, enough hardware and iron to get you through your Super Bowl, And then, um, in the middle of June, when the school bell rings and all the kids uh, go to their, uh, summer vacations, like it just sits there idle. Right. right. Uh, and, and I can't make money on it. And in fact, I have to pay money to keep it cool, to keep it yeah. backed up. And so like the, the cloud, um, it, it, it made perfect sense for us. Um, but what it also did is, you know, when, when, when the cloud wasn't really viable at the time, it's like, that's a pretty big barrier to entry for anyone that wants to compete in this kind of unique um, uh, space, digital assessment, online assessment space. Like, you can't just be, um, you know, a couple people in their dorm room with a great idea um, that can disrupt. Like your your idea is not going to make it to uh, the floor to be able to disrupt because you got to have, you got to have. But now, not so much. Like our uh, the barrier to entry is is pretty much gone. Sure, there's there's some like historical, uh, uh, you know, like street cred and, and there's psychometric uh, discipline and all kinds of stuff that like we have in our organization, but from a technical standpoint, there's no barrier. There's no barrier at all. So there, so now idea in, you know, uh, dreamt up in a bar or, uh, in a dorm room can be a viable idea, uh, and, and can, you know, and can meet the need of a market just as easily as your idea. So it's, you know, it has both ends, um, both ends. And I think that it's been good for our organization because it's, uh, it's made us realize that, uh, we, we need to continue to innovate and challenge ourselves. And, uh, there's nothing preordained about our position in the assessment market. Um, at least from a technical standpoint, because uh, the cloud has made it so that the idea at the end of the day is the thing that, um, is going to win and execution. So, yeah. Tell, and tell me if this is not interesting for you to cover, but one of the things I've always been fascinated about too with with basically, for lack of better terms, web-enabled uh, delivery, right? It, and especially in the education space is uh, getting, getting uh, chunks of data from one big area to another big area is not that hard, relatively speaking, right? But then... Still, it, what fascinates me is the variance from city to city, building to building, district to district, right, is these true, like, it last mile or even, like, last foot of the internet issues with schools and sometimes their ability to even uh, connect to the internet, I find fascinating. And I don't know if, if your work deals with that at all, but I, I always get interested. Okay. Talk 100%. to me about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So one of the hats, I mean, I wear the information security data privacy hat, like yeah. that's the most important hat. Um, 
And with the last name like Sherlock, my hat actually <laughs> looks like, uh, and I've got the, um, so, but uh, I also have the privilege of managing our field service engineering team and some of our customer support type of activities, yep. uh, which means like um, we spend a lot of time in schools, in school districts, half of our time, three quarters of our time in the spring is spent in classrooms, observing students and um, faculty using our software. And we were there a lot of times to troubleshoot technical things. Sometimes we're there uh, more more for a you know a political uh, sort of show and and just to make sure that we're we're supporting um, supporting their efforts. But we're always able to observe and bring back um, some of that knowledge back into our organization that we're that we're able to see in the classroom. And one of the things over time that that I've been able to observe is it, especially over the last six to seven years a rapid in um, a rapid increase in connectivity and broadband access for schools that was was not there in 2010. Um, like when we when we began doing the online testing thing um, almost 20 years ago, uh, the majority of the engineering in our online testing software was was uh, such uh, because it we had to deal with the fact that the road was almost guaranteed to be bumpy that yeah. we would drive on right so so much of our engineering in our platforms were aimed at anticipating, reacting, um, uh, being uh, tolerant of uh, bad connectivity. Uh, so retries, uh, you know, exponential back off on retries, making sure that we didn't um, eat up the precious bandwidth. So we had solutions where we would um, take test content and encrypt the test objects themselves um, so they're encrypted at the object layer but then we would allow those objects to be cached locally inside of like a, a caching server that a school could could download right yep. so so our whole model was predicated upon the the assumption that the school networks are unreliable um, and they will fail and and the bandwidth, their, their access to broadband was the most precious resource. So they're in computer labs, of course, at the time. They, every computer lab had a computer in it that would be a test content caching machine. And the students then, their software would be smart enough to go get the test item locally from their own school, like just get it from there, um, which saved on the internet and everyone was happy. Like without that, we would not have been able to um, make the progress into the digital online testing space without that architecture and that that um, design paradigm. Now, over the last five, six, seven years, uh, and it's it's clear what it is. Like it, it's it's because of the concerted effort um, by uh, you know the federal government to to uh, incentivize and provide funding for. Uh, for broadband access, uh, now that you know broadband access, like you mentioned earlier, is is it's it's kind of like a commodity, like water and light. Like if you don't have it, how do you how do you create a, an equitable learning? Um, right. Broadband has moved now from this precious resource to like there's a lot of broadband. Uh, most of these, nearly every uh, school district in the country, more than ninety nine point eight percent of them have. Uh, at least, um, you know, enough broadband to guarantee each student in the in the district has a, a dedicated 100 kilobits per second. And that number now that the FCC has moved it up to, uh, you know, like, uh, I don't know if it's it might be a, a thousand kilobits per second as a target. So the broadband is becoming less of a less of a thing, which is cool. Yeah. But um the wireless infrastructure inside of schools is now the the new last mile. Yep, that, that's the challenge, and and it's it's. Um, but I I also think that that's going to get um, it's going to go you know it's going to get solved because there's a lot more funding that that can now be applied to uh, wireless uh, technology in the school, and I think it's it's a little tougher to solve on your own if you're a district because it's not as easy to like manage as a broadband like wi-fi is pretty finicky like you can start up a microwave and knock out somebody if you're on you know if you're broadcasting on 2.4 or something but um so that that's the big shift that we've seen and it's been an, a really really neat to see from a assessment standpoint what that means that means now that now there are opportunities for us to deliver assessment um, in an in innovation in assessment and states to innovate uh, to include much more um, content rich yep, uh, yep. and bandwidth heavy like simulations and video and audio and uh, so it's exciting as someone 
um, who has this like really cool catbird seat to see all this thing happen because I think that um, not only are, are people having devices and, and the students are more familiar with the devices, but we're going to be able to start to, you know, I can imagine now like virtual reality um, being a thing in in schools where, where students are able to be fully immersed in not only their learning, but in the, the manner in which they demonstrate their, um, you know, mastery of a concept like and all of it is predicated on this, this uh, tremendous push in technology. Uh, that we've seen in the past seven or eight years uh, in the U.S. That's great. Yeah, and I, I know a couple of years ago I was really excited about uh, a program that I saw at uh, at Kirkwood. Uh, so for listeners who aren't familiar, it's a that is a community college uh, in in our area, uh, but through a joint project that Kirkwood and the University of Iowa had, uh, it was I I was able to experience uh, a welding class that in, uh, uses uh, VR goggles and you're, you're actually holding uh, like a welding gun and metal. So it feels, but there, there's actually no arcs going through, but it looks like it. And just like what that can do from an early safety perspective, you know, get, yep. kids are using the tools, but then they're able to see how they're performing. And it looks like there's a real weld when you're looking through your goggles, right. On what you've mm-hmm. done. And then just uh, in in those cases too, there's there's no waste. Like uh, the amount of metal that like <laughs> yeah. new welder, right? Oh, try it again, try it again, try to eat. You can still do that without wasting materials. And so even thinking about uh, some of the things you mentioned, and then uh, for <laughs> probably probably for us, this might be inside baseball, but like really nerdy, like how you can go from summative assessment to formative assessment just by seeing how a student interacts with an object too right that in yeah. in kind of the the, the world of tomorrow <laughs> yeah and and from an equity perspective too i mean if we were to stay on the vr thread just for a little bit longer like think about how many well the the example that you gave like you have to have a certain a, a certain amount of funding or a certain amount of uh ability to access uh, materials or a facility or something like that to to experience some of those hands-on types of things. Um, and these are real skills that that one can acquire that have value um, in a community, in a in an industry. And uh, far too often though, there that one's ability to, to have access to an environment to uh, where they can use those tools is a function of uh, things that that you know typically fall on that continuum of uh, soci- socioeconomic status disparity, um, like virtual reality, uh, is exciting to me just from 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 that standpoint. Like like I can, if I'm a if I'm a teacher, I want to put together lessons. I can provide a learning opportunity that is fully immersive, that allows individuals brain to fire much like it would normally fire if it were to to perceive those objects in you know in uh in real time in front of them um and they don't have to have access to the the greatest equipment in the in the world or that like you can do it in vr that's what's so exciting to me and there's so much research out there that that has uh time and time again demonstrated that there's just a fundamental um difference in the way the human brain uh processes signal in a virtual reality medium, as opposed to a two-dimensional or even a video, that um, that has to be exciting for those of us that are really trying to figure out, you know, how to how to how equity plays into whatever learning opportunities that we develop. Um, for me, that's like uh, the reason why. I mean, I've got my VR headset just sitting a few feet from me, uh, and uh, like any any free time I have, I'm kind of tinkering in that because that's that's really exciting. Yeah, thank you. And I really appreciate you talking about kind of uh, equity issues, too, because I, I know that those are the things that, that do excite me is how how do we provide uh, more equitable, rich learning opportunities for for all students? Right. So it's not something that it's just like I think I think sometimes we might think about technology and it's that's only for the rich. Right. But actually what we're doing with technology to make it more more accessible, right? Another form of equity is just the accessibility things that that we can do. But then the opportunities that are provided to to students where they might not have been able to to explore some of these elements, it just makes me really excited about the future. It is. And when you look at the, like even the device ecosystem, 
um, and sort of bringing it even closer to present now with with the COVID um, and the the rapid move to remote um, learning. Like one of the things that nearly every district in the United States struggled with almost exactly one year ago today was, uh, wow, like we had we had devices. Some districts even had one to one initiatives. Iowa City had one yeah. uh, at at several of the grades. Um, if they didn't have them, they may have been on the roadmap. Um, but still, the device was. It was not a central part of day-to-day uh, -day instruction, at least not for all classes. Um, and for the most part, it was still an event. Like you had devices in a cart uh, and they were like 24 Chromebooks in a cart. And uh, uh, and they, when the cart wheeled in, you know, you're a student in the room, you're like, today is the day. Like the popcorn machine is probably following right behind it because when the Chromebook cart comes in, the party begins. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was an event now, like, we're going to come back to school in the fall when the bell rings, hopefully all, uh, you know, most uh, in, in, uh, in physical classrooms again. And like, I, it's just uh, to imagine how different it is going to be. It, it's hard to even overstate. Like if you were to walk in the back of a second grade classroom in September this year uh, on that first day, you're going to see students in second grade, pull their Chromebooks out of a bag and set it on their desktop just like they would a trapper key well they probably don't use trapper keepers these days right i don't know the me, but a yep, folder yep. or a pencil or right. something okay. and 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 so you're going to see 24 screens if you stand in the back of the room and, and you're also going to be looking at a teacher behind a podium who's had a year uh, plus to learn how to into uh, integrate um technology into their learning uh, and they're going to be far more skilled and adept at using the tech um in a meaningful way than they were a year ago uh and that's that's just really, really exciting to me to think from, you know, when you put your ed tech hat on and innovation hat, like that is the, the, the new baseline. That's, that's the, we, we've basically gone through three years of probably slower evolution in, in hyperspeed. And this is what you're going to be left with when the curtain comes up in the fall. Like the sooner you get your brain wrapped around that um, and can really digest that, the, better position you're going to be to be able to now innovate um, with that new landscape as the accepted norm. So that like, as a leader in our organization, I'm trying to always like, or never let myself uh, drift away from that reality. Like it's going to look totally different. And um, you know, when you innovate, that is what, that's what you're building on now. So it's, it's exciting uh, from my perspective uh, and, but also like, anxiety inducing i want to go now <laughs> i want to build <laughs> yeah. do something cool yeah thank you uh one thinking about you know as you, you said wanting wanting to build and i know you uh like you said you know as an kind of an investigator too like trying to trying to understand where a problem might be and then how do you how do you prevent that problem from recurring but do you ever in in your looking at the future in your day-to-day -day work do you ever feel stuck like or uh, how how do you get unstuck when you're you're trying to wrap your mind around a tough problem? Ah, that that's cool. I, you know, I can tell you the trap that I've um, fallen into commonly, and which which normally ends up in in me spinning wheels, uh, and that is that is the temptation, especially as someone who's enamored by shiny objects and tech, is to. Uh, you know, like, especially when you're in the world of cloud or with Amazon, like seemingly every single day, there's two or three new services that Amazon or that AWS comes out with to do amazing things. Uh, and the temptation, I think, is is typically to gravitate towards the new service or the tech and use that as your anchor and figure out, all right, what can I build uh, on top of that? And then go out and find a, a problem uh, to to uh, to to attack it with, uh, and invariably, what you what you end up with is is maybe an awesome technology solution in, in a super clever way, but like uh, it falls on deaf ears or just doesn't the, the adoption isn't there. Uh, it doesn't seem to like work, uh, you know, resonate, and and that's when I get stuck. Um, so one of the things that our team uh, did this past summer is we worked with Amazon's, um, they call it their culture of uh, innovation team. This is a, a group of um, experts at Amazon who are um, extremely well-skilled in 
how Amazon innovates. And it's, it's for the most part, it's predicated entirely on customer at the heart of uh, their innovation. And when you go through the, something like that, and this was like a two week workshop, um, several hours a day uh, for most of those days, and you really learn um, the importance of defining your customer first, describing your customer in a level of detail that you've never really are used to, like give them a name and what do they want to do when they're like, you're, you're yep. really yep. unpacking that, right? And then when you have consensus as a group, then you start talking about what, what does the customer need? How do you find that out? So we uh, then we embark on things like we, you know, well, Clubhouse is one way to kind of listen in and you can go to forums and speak at conferences. And so when we went through that methodology, then as a group, um, suddenly the fixation wasn't on the tech uh, idea. Like we didn't solution. We didn't do any solutioning until we could do this hard work of defining the customer and the problem and what they wanted to do and what they couldn't do. And then it seemed like the the solutioning was sort of like it happened quicker than I would have thought. But um, probably because we'd done the hard work and and then the ability to uh, give yourself a little grace and um, build a little bit, um, test, uh, measure, did it uh, work? Nope, didn't work. All right, cool. Uh, we're going to learn. We're going to go back. Like, I'm not going to make any design decisions that um, that I can't back out of. Right. Um, that that to me, like if, if you really, really uh, adhere to that methodology of innovation, then that helps um, avoid some of the inevitable uh, spinning of the tires that you get. Uh, because most of the time when you spin the tires, you're spinning tires because you just don't know why you got stuck. Uh, it's not like, you know, I can't figure out a way out of this. You're, you're spinning your tires. She's like, why doesn't everyone love this as much as I love this? This is like, come on, uh, parade. I want a ticker tape. Like, come on. Um, it, it's one so, of the things I try to drive home with my, with, with, with clients, but also my uh, innovation students at the at University of Iowa is just as you said, it like I try to convince, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. I, we see so many like almost e ego led, pot committed kind of things where it's like we're just going to make the solution work, and at the end of the day, it doesn't, and it it costs more to kind of uh, dig yourself out of that hole. Yep. Uh, like what I what I heard you saying too is with that Amazon process is. When you have quick and dirty, low fidelity prototypes, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to throw those away too. Like, okay, what did we learn from that? But that wasn't right. Like, and it's, so I've tried to <laughs> try to share with students too. It's if I spend 20 seconds drawing something on a post-it and it wasn't right, my day isn't ruined because I have to put that aside. Yep. I spend two months working on something all by myself and I think it's really precious. And yep. then I, then I unveil it and nobody likes it it's really hard for me to throw it away. And it's, that's really hard and difficult for me as I think my, so my liberal, not to get all like, yeah. um, like uh, existential about it, but so my liberal arts training, you know, like, especially in grad school was all about, well, why and why, and are you sure? Like question everything. And which is great. It feels good. Like, yeah, I'm going to question everything. Um, man, that does not work when you're trying, when you're trying to bring an idea to market quickly, like the whole paralysis by analysis thing is a real thing. Um, and that was hard for me, uh, someone who like is a little more cautious, probably on the, on the risk tolerance spectrum and one who, who's always doubting, asking questions like, well, am I sure? Am I sure? Like, I'm going to be in the same spot in a year. If you keep on asking that question, yeah. Amazon is they're they're like scientific about this. They say, uh, decisions should be made once you have about 70% of the data that you need in order to make a uh, a rational decision and then you go and and just don't box yourself in with a one-way door that can only go one direction yep. and um it is uh like that's just one of those like fundamental blocks that once our team uh went through that hard work um and we ended up you know i think i mentioned to you earlier this was part of a like a company shark tank competition yep. And uh, we we rapid prototyped. We had a proof of concept. The district used our virtual uh, labs and AWS uh, thing, uh, and we won it. And there's no way we would have um, if we didn't go through the process because what we created was something that was uh, it resonated with the district. It it yeah. integrated with their single sign-on. It uh, integrated with their one roster uh, format. It was like it had the things that it really needed to, to get traction. And it had some bells and whistles too, but the bells and whistles weren't the things that the customers needed to adopt. It was the, 
like this thing better, like the students shouldn't have to have another user ID and a password to use the system. Um, they should be able to click an icon and you just pull from our single sign-on just like it. So we, we wouldn't have known that I was focused on the, on the tech. Um, so that's yeah. like from an innovation standpoint, it's so, it's such an important um, lesson to learn. And I hope I, you know, am able to maintain that, uh, that perspective because uh, that is how, re you know, real true innovation, especially in ed tech is going to happen uh, here. Yeah, the, I I love I love it, and I really appreciate the uh, the Amazon uh, way that you referenced, right? And I was just kind of curious because they, uh, you know, there's John Rossman's book, like the the what is it, the 14 Rules of Amazon Leadership. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, and I know that a, a good friend of mine who I worked at I worked with at a couple different tech companies. He's 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 a he's a director in the user experience space at Amazon. And he said that it's legit. I mean, they're, they, they, that there's a methodology and they're held to it. And uh, it's, but it, I, what I love is and what I'm hearing from you too, it, it's this great way to balance uh, agility mm -hmm. and, and kind of this customer user centric. Again, what are their goals? What are they trying to achieve? Because that's what we have to focus on first. And then, uh, how are we going to do it quickly? So let's accurately understand the target and then let's test these, these solutions quickly on what might be most helpful or viable. Yeah. And I've heard, can't tell you actually just earlier today, I had a 90 minute presentation at our, uh, our large Pearson company uh, technology summit with the principal um, architect for uh, AWS in their um in their culture of innovation team. And so we shared the stage and, and they talked about their methodology, their 14 leadership points and how they innovate. And I kind of made it relevant for how we yeah. um, translated that in ours. It was just awesome to, to share the stage with someone um, like that, that who, who really knows, knows their stuff, but it's true. Like you'll be in a meeting um, in, in, uh, in AWS. And if there's a decision point that is kind of like, you'll see leaders, directors, VPs, you know, engineers turn their badge over and look at leadership principles. Like it's not just a, it's not just a, you know, a, a bumper sticker, right? Uh, like the, these, these are guiding principles and, and they help um, people make decisions and you're, you're never going to get, you know, uh, blamed or faulted for making a decision that is congruent with, you know, one of their, one of the leadership principles. And um, it is, it is, uh, it is just like everything. It's a, it's a process. It's measurable. Um, and it's quick right. and, and, yep. and they empower their, in, you know, everyone along the chain to make these decisions. So, uh, they have absolutely no room, um, for, uh, red tape or our uh, process getting in the way of a good idea or a good decision being made. So that's, that's, that ta that's difficult. I think for a lot of organizations, cause you're, you know, there's a certain amount of like comfort that comes with some of that historical, hierarchy but um you know if you want to be quick and you have to be fast yeah uh, it's yeah. just not going to work to your point want to play with the idea too because you you know talking about these principles right and those those principles are one they're guidelines and they they help and the, and it's a shared language but but where i see teams and especially in mature organizations right where they struggle it's people falling back to procedures as it right and the, these procedures are almost all made up Many of them for good reasons, right? There could be safety, security protocols that are involved, but that's a lot of times when when I know we're in trouble from an innovation standpoint is when somebody starts referencing a procedure manual and right, right isn't talking about how this helps the customer, how this drives the business forward, right? And and those are struggles. And so, uh, just for me personally, those those are some of the lessons that I took away from my my Amazon experiences too. Is yep, let's. One, let's be accurate, right? So then we can move quickly to that target. So we accurately understand the problem, problem space, the customer, customer need. And then what are the quickest ways that we can test these assumptions? And I, I really appreciate your point too. It's like, we're doing rational decision-making and uh, we're doing trying to make the, the best call on the available information, mm -hmm. right? Rather, rather than waiting for everything to be perfect. And yeah, so it, the, it's a powerful approach. And I, I'm just geeking out a little bit because what I do love is that it is, like you said, it's walking the talk, right? It's not, 
yep. here, here's a framing device we use to show why we're cool or smart, or here's values that we have on the wall, but that there are people solving problems every day there in teams using the shared model. Yep. And you're expected to know them even when you're not, if you're, if, if you're trying to get a position uh, at Amazon, you're expected to know those principles because um, a good chunk of your uh, interview process uh, is very likely to follow uh, some, some, some number of those uh, principles uh, yeah. to some degree. Uh, so I think even before you, even before your day one, as they call it, like you're already um it's already been made very clear to you that 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 these are not just uh, you know slogans. This is what we, um, you know, this is how this is how we're able to innovate. And again, back to my earlier point, like it's a dizzying amount of new services and things. It, it's it's anxiety inducing. I can't keep up with it for someone that wants to know. Like it's just it's just so so hard. You at some point you just have to admit like all right, you win. Uh, I can't keep up with all these services, and uh, I'll learn about it someday. But um, now you, you realize how they can do it, but every one of those, every one of those starts with, uh, their like press release doc. Like they have you write a press release before you write a single line of code. Yep. Um, so yep. uh, my team had to write a press of one pager, one page press release. It follows a particular format. There's a date, uh, stamp at the beginning of it. There are quotes from fictitious people or real people, but fictitious quotes, like it follows a format and its purpose is to inform internal audiences about what it is that you're unveiling, why it's important for them to know and what it's going to do for them. And you go through that and part of, then you put the PR FAQ document together, which is more of a press release and frequently asked questions. Um, all of this is done for every innovation. Uh, nobody gets a free pass. And one of the things that my team loved the most that you'll probably get a kick out of, I'll share it uh, with you here afterwards, but the um, part of our workshop at the end, when we were kind of talking about, it was a little more of a marketing speak, um, but we were still on defining your customer was we got to work with an extremely talented graphic arts um, design company uh, called Ink Factory. And, and they had a, an engineer that worked with us that was just, it was so much fun for our team. Um, they wrote, they put together a, a storyboard, an eight um, panel storyboard, and it took about three hours for us to get through this eight panels. Yeah, and yeah. the level of detail was tell me about your customer. Oh, okay. She's, you know, it's a, it's a person, you know, she's probably, I don't know, 15 male or female. Wow. Okay, female. What's her name? Uh, what does she want to do? Like all of these details. I'm like, how do I know? This is, a, I didn't write the script. And so like, no, you wrote the script. <laughs> you created a product. You better be able to. So we were like, we very quickly got into this world of like defining our customer at a level that none of us expected. And then they then created this storyboard that told our story better than any of us could. And now I can give that to internal audiences. They see exactly what it is that we're innovating. It was so cool to see it turn into that, but it was just like a, it was almost like a metaphor for the entire process. Like it, it, it you know, you better be able to describe why, what it is that you're um, creating and the benefit that it has to the, your customer to such a degree that you could tell that to someone whose skill is in drawing and they could then um, make a film strip or a storyboard out of it. And yeah, you should be yeah. able to do that so well and write a FAQ document out of it so well that you could hand that to a, designer or an engineer and they could start to prototype based on your like that's a pretty high bar <laughs> yeah it's so but, but it is a super super powerful is. tool it and, is uh think you know the way you described it to and and not to, you know i don't know what the the artists are making hourly but in the grand scheme of things how inexpensive that is to get that much yep. clarity and alignment on, on what yep. you're trying to accomplish is, is so powerful. I love yeah, it. Yeah. I love it. it. It taught us. I mean, it's worth it just if it's a lesson, like if it, if it were a lecture, but we, we also have an artifact that we've used in multiple uh, uh, instances to do our dirty work for us. Like, what what is it that you guys uh, look here, look at this film strip. Like you, you read the, the comics, right? Uh, like uh, if we did our job, then you're going to be able to see the, you know, the heroine and the challenge and the resolution, yeah. like it's all going to be there. And uh, which, which, which it was, it's really cool. Um, but yeah, I wish I had any kind of like creative bone in my body like that, because man, what a fun job that would be to take uh, people's descriptions and uh, just bring it to life in a storyboard. Man, 
<laughs> yeah, I cool. love I love it. Uh, Jim, one of the things that I like to uh, dig into with guests is a uh, broad category is advice. Uh, and so sometimes this takes the shape of good advice that maybe a mentor uh, provided you, uh, you know, early in your life, or sometimes they've said it to you and you didn't process it. But as you get older, you realize there was some wisdom there. Or, uh, you know, kind of me stealing from Austin Cleon, steal like an artist. When we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. So could be what's some advice that you wish you would have had earlier. So either mm-hmm. or both. Yeah, I, I'm not um, big on quotes because I just, I, I tend to hear what I want to hear. And then the quote that I end up attributing to the actual quote is nothing like it, but, but it makes sense to me and I end up sounding foolish someday. So I, but I, I do know that, um, I mean, how I would respond to that kind of dovetails into what we were, we were talking about even, even earlier uh, today is that like I, I tend to think of my career more, more in line of the, the intro to uh, Forrest Gump um, with that feather sort of like doing what feathers do. Right. And um and I also think in in terms of like metaphors and uh, analogies quite a bit, like that's the only section on the SAT that I did really well on. Um, so I, I tend to think of it that way because I don't know, like I'm most comfortable for me when when I'm um, uh, I'm a jazz musician. So when I'm on a stage and I know just enough, like uh, I know I know the chart or I know the uh, the basic chord changes or I know what key we're in. Um, and I know a little bit about the musicians, maybe, but that's like really all. I tend to I tend to um, be most you know comfortable and have found the most success when I when I'm willing to to uh, adapt and improvise and keep eyes open um, and recognize opportunity rather than um, have something in mind like a, what some people call them what they call them plans or uh, or uh, like actual hopes <laughs> or agendas like. I don't know. And maybe, maybe I'm a, j- a bit jaded, like they've never really worked out for me. So I'm just uh, throwing caution to the wind. But I, I do think there's something to be said about jazz, especially, and what you learn as a jazz musician to, to trust, like you trust your, you trust your ears and you trust your ability to read, read the, the, the stage and um, read the, the mood of the musicians, um, listen to what the, the drummer is doing, uh, the, the, the keyboard is doing and then react and respond. Like that, that to me, that's a metaphor for really how I, how I kind of have gone about everything is that I, I I try not to think I have all that much control over it, but, um, I'm going to try to hone every skill I can to be able to like read the room and adapt or read the situation and adapt. And I figure if I went to, to school to be a social studies teacher, ended up working for the defense department in cryptography, and now I've got a, a gig at an education company doing some really cool stuff. Uh, it hasn't let me down yet. So I'm going to just kind of ride that Forrest Gump feather for a while, and maybe I can ride it all the way to the, to the sunset. I, I, I love it. And you're, you're using your kind of jazz metaphor or analogy what I, I like about that too is like when when jazz is done well, it is uh, it's a leaderless group, right? It's you see like different people taking leads and and but it it fits right and uh, and it's also from from a listener standpoint, right? it's also you know when it's not working, but mm-hmm. but but jazz improvis- improvisation to me is 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 a great a great way to see just a wonderful team dynamic so i i love i just loved you you know bringing that up because that that's one that i use for for teams that are there like you said they're re- responding to so many different things uh but it's like a complex system is that there's not a set of rule we're going to do this exactly or we're going to hold this or exactly these measures right it's like who's stepping out who's doing this what's the mood of the room how do we work the crowd? Uh, all of those things at play is really interesting. I, I've been I've uh, been engaged in some of the maybe the most sarcastic and uh, even sometimes like spiteful and angry conversations on a uh, uh, you know on a jazz stage or on a on a combo stage with with people at the sanctuary if we're playing a gig there and like nobody else knows it's just music and I get done and I'm like oh yeah <laughs> is that what you think I'm like 
nobody played anything. He's just the drummer was just happened to play, you know, something kind of funky, some syncopated stuff after I played it. Uh, oh, it just happened to be mocking me, uh, which of course I knew, but nobody else knew, but I'm like, you know, but, but that's what I love is because you can, like, you can express yourself and you can be an individual in those con, uh, contexts uh, as a jazz musician, but you're still, you're still making music. Like your whole, your product is, is still a function of all of the different voices and, you're only going to be better though, the more you, you uh, trust the people that um, you're on the stage with and you get used to them. Um, so that's, it is something that I, I really carry that metaphor all the time as a leader in this organization and how I, I try to build teams. Um, Cause I, I think it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty true universally. That's great. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast. I, I love it every time we get a chance to, to talk. So I was, kind of excited that you're willing to do it while we're recording, but I, yeah. <laughs> I just love, I love you sharing your, your arc. And I learned some new things about you today that I didn't know. So I really appreciate you sharing those. Yeah. And thank you uh, very much. I've been listening to uh, this series and the podcast for a while. So it's, it's really cool uh, to, to be uh, part of, part of what uh, you know, you've put together because the, there's a, a lot of people that I uh, have grown up respecting and some that I didn't know. And I respect a lot more now because, well, um, I respect now because I, I heard them on your, your podcast. So it's, it's humbling to just be part of what is now what uh, you're probably climbing up upwards near 80 uh, of these. Is that right? Yeah. We broke 75 recently of, wow. of published episodes. Yep. That that's cool. Well, congrats to you. I, uh, I really, really enjoy They're all, they're all so unique and I'm, uh, very, very humble to be part of it. So thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Thanks so much for, for taking the time. 